From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Friday, June 9th. Two years ago today, a fire broke out in the Pack Creek day-use area. It moved quickly through the vegetation along the creek, tearing through several homes and structures in the Pack Creek neighborhood. And then it moved up to the mountains. Over the coming days and weeks, the fire burned close to 9,000 acres, mainly in the LaSalle National Forest. It was a scary, emotional time for many in the Moab area. On the two-year anniversary of the Pack Creek Fire, Molly Marcello brings us back to its early hours with two people who were there. We'll hear their stories and the state of the forest today. Well, I'm Michael Englehart. I'm the district ranger for the Moab and Monticello Ranger Districts. June 9, 2021, I was in Price for an all-day meeting, and um, I actually saw the fire before I got the first call because I was driving over at the moment. I was driving over from Green River, um, was headed to the turnoff towards south, towards Moab, and saw the column pick up, and I knew the phone calls were going to start to come. So I remember quite vividly. Uh, arriving here in Moab and uh, the first initial calls uh, from folks were that uh, they think they had a strategy to maybe get around it and and bottle it up but by that time I had reached the the parking lot here in Moab uh, that 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 initial plan just had not panned out and you could start to see the glow of the fire you could start feel I remember a hot wind coming off the LaSalle's that night, blowing in the direction of town. And I'm standing in this parking lot here, and from here, I could feel the, the nature of the change happening out there. And of course, I, I took a lot of phone calls that night, and my mind immediately and continued to race for quite a long period of time about firefighter safety concern for the public, concern for the homes in Pack Creek. It it didn't take very long to realize that this was a community event, one that was going to affect our community, not just the folks in Pack Creek, but everyone who cares about these mountains, cares about our management, um, cares about the landscape and the beautiful backdrop that it provides here in Moab. And um, yeah, my mind was locked on that. Um, and I can tell you, I didn't get very much sleep that first night, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm Daniel A. I'm the hydrologist and soil scientist for the south zone of the Mantana South. That afternoon when it started, I remember I was in my backyard and I saw smoke. And I got up in my roof and could tell that it was somewhere up in Pack Creek. And then I heard that it was somewhere near the picnic area, pushing downstream towards the the community. I previously fought fire for several years, so in my mind, I thought, well, they'll have this handled. All I could really think about was the ecological impacts and what we're going to have to deal with later down the road. And so my first impression was, okay, well, it's not going to be that big. It's going to be in the riparian area. It's not going to have significant impacts because a lot of there's a lot of moisture in there. And it wasn't until later that evening I received a call from Michael saying that you know it's much bigger than that and yeah the next day it was it was much bigger and it pushed up onto the forested lands yeah all I could think about was what's this going to do uh, how this is going to have an impact on the ecological resources um, anybody that's familiar with LaSalle's knows that 
uh, this fire burning right in um, the areas that people love, all of our recreation sites, all of our trails. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that it is pretty devastating okay. to sit down here. And, we are and, looking uh, at uh, weeks, multiple weeks, likely before the fire is brought to containment. Yeah, right now we have approximately 306 personnel assigned to the fire. Um, there's a lot of different agencies involved. This is definitely a very robust interagency response. Um, we're coordinating with the local That very first morning, um, morning of June 10th, began at uh, probably 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, getting a call from Sheriff's Dispatch and them needing some place to send all the phone calls for the homeowners. And um, I didn't have a public affairs officer assigned to the fire at that moment in time, so that became me. And I remember those phone calls uh, incredibly well. Uh, people that were out of state, out of town at the time, people who were down there and had been evacuated, trying to learn the news about their property, um, people concerned about had everybody gotten out? Can we go back in? What's going on back there? Um, do you know how many homes were burned? Man, I can't tell you how many times I tried to answer that question the best of my ability, in the, especially in that first operational period. And it, uh, it strongly brought home a sense of responsibility and caring for some of that anguish that the community was feeling, but it did more. It built, built relationship and it, um, it allowed me a very uh, hands-on approach to talking to individuals that were being affected by the fire. And uh, I'll remember those conversations. I'll remember how worried people were, but how civil they were and how kind they were, and how caring they were about our firefighters and the sheriff's office or other cooperators that were out there dealing with it. That will always stick with me. Uh, people weren't just thinking about themselves, they were thinking about uh, the landscape. They were thinking about our firefighters. And um, I know what's gonna stay with me my entire career. Just gratitude for the firefighters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, seeing. <laughs> seen the scene that they're just kind of marching into or flying above or you know yeah. all the things that they're protecting that is yeah I'm so grateful so grateful and grateful for the love from the community <laughs> yeah um yeah just it's you know reiterates just what a beautiful soulful um supportive community it is here By the way, I love I, I love stories, and I love remembering not just what happened, but the sense of what happened, the feelings behind what happened. And I think that's the story of Pack Creek. It was a it, it's a story of community. It's a story of, in some ways, tragedy, in some ways, loss, uh, in some ways, fear, and uh, but it it's definitely a story of resilience. So where are we now? Well, in those early days, the Forest Service and their partners immediately started looking at critical values impacted by the fire, and they predicted future erosion based on the severity of the burn. As a hydrologist and soil scientist, 
Lei experimented with the latest mitigation techniques, like steel netting. That got installed pretty close to where the fire broke out, right across Pack Creek. Those nets were meant to slow the flow of debris in the water and gather sediment to counter erosion. Yeah, so the, those steel nets, one of them... So right after we install Didn't one of them... work. I think worked for a while <laughs> yeah. is a better term. Exactly. <laughs> so it was, quite, it was quite interesting. We were installing the second net, and we got to witness the debris flow an hour after we installed it. And it was about 700 cubic feet per second and it completely wiped out the net. It didn't even stand a chance. However, the up one withstood that and withstood several other debris flows that were um, around three to 400 CFS. And I have some pictures of it. The, the accumulation of sediment was about five to six feet tall and 300 feet upstream. So just tons of sediment that, it, that, that held. But it, it took about a eight to 900 uh, foot per second flow to to wipe that one out. It kind of undercut it and eventually wiped it out. So I realized that we needed something way more significant. And that is a Gabion basket. These heavy steel baskets filled with cobble will be installed in two or three spots along the banks of Pack Creek, right where the stream is hitting the road. And Lay says they should withstand the force of the creek. That project is coming up this year, but they've done other work too like seeding the picnic area for soil stability and wildlife. And they've put rock check dams in the upper watersheds. Engelhart says they're doing what they can, but... You, you can't stop everything. You can't do everything. You can't wave your wand. Um, I think we were calling it uh, geomorphology now, yeah. which I think is it's a reality of a post-fire environment. You can't, mm -hmm. you, you can't stop everything, and, and then a natural process will take place. But you can do some of these restoration techniques to uh, reestablish some stability, reestablish uh, uh, grades within the, the stream channels, take those first steps towards a healthy riparian environment, which are so important uh, for both water quality and water quantity. Um, you're giving it that, that next step, little bit of a fighting chance to reestablish uh, without uh, accepting all geomorphology now. I guess restoration is uh, it's it's one of those it's one of those terms we use. Uh, Mother Nature will restore itself <laughs> at some point in time, but how long will it take to get to that point? And then what are the downstream effects from from that? Uh, I think as a responsible land management agency, we need to be aware of those effects, both to the environment and to the reestablishment of, uh, of species and, and vegetation and, and uh, public use of that land, uh, development of that use uh, for things like agriculture. We need to be aware of that. And then our downstream partners and community that we care about uh, that deal with these flows, that deal with water quality issues. Uh, yeah, it's a responsible step to take. Um, and I think that that's been another valuable piece to Pack Creek is um, when wondering what we can do, being willing to go and find some partners and try out a few things and then learn from that. Uh, we're a learning organization. The Forest Service is a learning organization. Um, and we have to be brave and we have to try out a few new things that we're not sure are going to quite work. And we definitely learned that from Pack Creek learning from, I wouldn't call them mistakes, learning from a little bit of an experimentation, a little risk, 
um, a little trial, uh, that makes us better and better year after year. So can you tell us about the recovery when it comes to vegetation and, you know, relatedly wildlife? So the vegetation area, it's interesting. It's comprised of a whole range of vegetation, all the way from the lowland riparian to juniper, uh, excuse me, pinyon juniper, aspen, and then spruce conifer. And what you're seeing on the, on the south aspects in the juniper communities is that it's, the pinyon juniper community takes a long time to come back. And so we, we were in a, what they call a late seral stage before the fire. And so the fire was pretty catastrophic through that vegetation type, and now it's converted back to an early seral. And so what that means is that it's converted to a grass and forb community now. Mm-hmm. So here in 100 to 200 years, you're going to see that pinyon juniper come back. Someone will. <laughs> so when a lot of the people from the public look at the fire, when they are specifically in the pinyon juniper communities and see the fire, they might think this is bad. But right now, what I'm seeing on the fire in those communities is a lot of grass and forb come back. A lot of native species, hardly any invasives, and um, take a step higher up in the the Gamble Oak. So in Dory and Brumley Creek on the North Aspects, the severity on North Aspects wasn't that severe because the North Aspects hold more moisture because it's hardly ever um, exposed to the sun. And so after the fire, when we did our monitoring, there was a lot of duff components still there. And um, that Gamble Oak community uh, actually thrives on fire. And so when you go to those North Aspects right now, some of that Gamble Oak is already five feet tall and after the fire I could walk through there just fine and now it's almost impossible to walk through some of it mm-hmm. same thing with Aspen Aspen need uh, well there's many types of communities of Aspen that need fire for regeneration before the fire let's say you probably had around 500 stems per acre or less in a lot of these communities and now after fire we're seeing upwards of 10 to 20,000 stems per acre so just a massive regeneration of Aspen in in like Dory and Brimley. Mm-hmm. And then I guess I can talk about the wildlife. So far from what I've heard and seen is that the wildlife, the elk and the deer, big game, turkeys, are especially hitting the pinyon juniper communities uh, above Pack Creek. There's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of grass and forbs and, and forage for those species. And so... Um, those species really love post-fire uh, effects in those, those areas. They really thrive on that. So since the Pack Creek fire, I'm hearing there have been stronger partnerships created around these mitigation projects and even a few opportunities for experimentation. So, you know, two years later, how do you think about the fire now? Pack Creek was not a good thing to experience. Um, it was scary. Um, that fire ripped down through those homes and then ripped back up through it. And firefighters were at risk, homes were at risk, lives were at risk, memories were at risk. Um, people's sense of what is was at risk. But on the other side, having gone through what some might describe as a tragedy, but certainly could you know, be described as a very trying time, the end result is that we have built partnerships, we have built community around a bad event. And now we're assessing the effects of that bad event and capitalizing on what Mother Nature is doing, what, what the natural systems and processes are doing, experimenting 
growing partnerships, various people investing with us in restoration up there, and then taking some, I, I would call a little bit of bold leaps to try out some new things and see what's going to work. And then once we learn more, make some major investments where we think it's going to make the, the biggest bang for our buck, which uh, in my opinion is, is um, meeting or exceeding um, our responsibility to those relationships we built during that trying time. And um, looking back on Pat Creek, uh, I don't know that I want to go through something like that again, but working in Forest Service, we go through these things in communities all across the country uh, quite frequently. Certainly, you could look at it as a sad time, but, but afterwards you grow and you get stronger. And uh, I think that's what we'll hopefully do with the, you know, the landscape post-fire. We look at that as, um, you know, the landscape post-fire is now more resilient and hopefully helping it to continue that resilience um, on into the you know the next generation mm -hmm. and so um, yeah I guess Pat Creek is uh, something to watch for a number of different reasons something to experience for a lot of different reasons but um, looking back on the fire I, all my memories are full of hard work determination resilience and people showing up with their best to, uh, to recover. That was Michael Englehart of the Moab and Monticello Ranger Districts. We also heard from Daniel Lay, hydrologist and soil scientist for the south zone of the Manti LaSalle's. It's been two years since the Pack Creek Fire. The Forest Service is working alongside a long list of partners on recovery, including other government agencies, nonprofits, citizen scientists, and community volunteers. The Grand County Commission was in session this week, so... What happened at the what meeting? Happened what at happened, the happened meeting? at the meeting? What uh, exactly happened at the meeting? Moab Sun News editor Maggie McGuire has the answer. At this week's Grand County Commission meeting, elected officials moved forward on some long-term plans, including improvements to the town boat ramp scheduled for construction this winter and exploring options for the future of the Moab to Monument Valley Film Commission, potential revisions to the high-density housing overlay, an ordinance that intends to increase available housing for local workers, continue to be debated. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Moab's wildflower super bloom has garnered lots of attention and excitement in recent weeks. I spoke with Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent about what exactly a super bloom entails. What I learned is that super blooms are a completely legitimate term, but they're, they don't have kind of a scientific basis to them necessarily. They're kind of more of a, a socio-ecological term is one thing that scientist Daniel Winkler told me where a group of humans kind of decides that we're, having, we're in a super bloom and, and the... Um, concept takes off. Okay, so there's no threshold of flowers that we have to cross to be considered a super bloom? Exactly. It's something that's been popularized, I think, in, in popular media um, and, and sometimes in social media, too, as folks kind of try to race out to um, take pictures of, of these super blooms. And, and the valley has certainly been amazing this spring. Um, but it's interesting, the concept of super blooms, uh, Winkler told me, can also be, you know, kind of good or bad for gateway communities when they become very popularized, because it leads to an onslaught sometimes of, of tourism uh, that happened notably in, in Southern California in 2019 during a poppy bloom. Um, you know, can very much stimulate the local economy, but also stress out public lands and their stewards. Is that phenomenon happening in Moab? 
It's kind of hard to tell. I did take a look at, um, you know, National Park Service visitation data, but it's so hard to extract the, the notion of a super bloom from other things happening, like time to entry. It's hard to tell. I also haven't seen too much reporting on it in the popular media, but it's something to keep an eye out for. Um, but also, of course, a source of, of sincere enjoyment for locals and visitors alike. And I think we are going to be seeing possibly kind of better than average, you could say, blooms up in the LaSalle Mountains this summer, too. So um, it's certainly been a, a wonderful thing to experience this yeah. season. And did he talk about how many different species of flowers we're seeing this year compared to other years? Um, not necessarily, although I did speak with Barb Smith. She's um, a scientist with the Forest Service here. And she said that up in the Salles, there might not be this the same kind of um, quantity necessarily of flowers that we're seeing down here in the valley. But she said that the biodiversity up there could be very much accentuated by the rain we've had. Um, so a lot of um, flower species that might not necessarily bloom every year we could see this year she also said the precipitation is going to be really helping the aspen groves up there that sprouted following the the 2021 pack creek fire so um, there should be a good degree of biodiversity up in the mountains cool and maybe this is like beyond the scope of your story but is it the kind of thing where they, the plants lay dormant and then once there's enough rain, they'll bloom? Because like, why have these plants not bloomed in previous years? Exactly. So Winkler spoke about how desert plants in particular are very adapted to lying dormant through extreme drought and heat and sprouting and taking off as soon as the conditions are ripe, which means, you know, the right temperature and a lot of precipitation. So that's exactly right that seeds um, and plants themselves can kind of lie dormant and just wait for the precipitation to occur that they need and then they'll take off and grow like crazy. It's a very cool adaptation that we see here with the extremes in our desert environment. Cool. Was there anything else you wanted to say? I think that's it. Okay. So in other news, last week was graduation at the high school. Yeah, Grand County High School graduated 102 seniors in the class of 2023 in a ceremony on June 1st in the back lawn of the high school. Uh, we have photos of that in this week's edition and excerpts uh, from various speakers. Their commencement speaker was Larry Campbell, who was actually the, he's a veteran of the film industry and was actually the student body president of the high school 50 years ago in 1973. So certainly a, a special person to address this class. Cool. And I know that the high school has struggled with graduation rates in the past. Um, is this a average year graduating class size? It's I haven't seen the numbers on that yet. Um, I know that it was a 92% graduation rate from seniors who started the year to seniors who graduated, um, you know, at the end of this year, but I haven't seen the rate yet for, you know, the incoming, what, uh, what the rate was from the incoming freshman class up until this year. Um, but I'd look forward to seeing that. Got it. What was, <laughs> uh, what were some of the highlights of the graduation? What was the like send off message? I think you know we heard some addresses from salutatorian uh, Maggie. Green and valedictorian Lillian Scott, and those were both very powerful addresses. Um, Maggie spoke. She asked folks to take kind of a moment to reflect on those who had helped them achieve this moment and reflected on the the noise and the pomp and the circumstance of graduation and then the quiet that often follows these huge, you know, life events. And I thought that was very powerful. And then uh, Scott spoke about the need to overcome division and online vitriol in this age and how, you know, the graduating class should move forward into the world hoping to do that. So certainly some very inspirational messages. Nice. Any other, like, quirks that made this a special graduation? Actually, there was one quirk. Thank you for asking. Um, every graduate, you know, they, they walk through the G, the big G on stage before they uh, receive their diploma. And every senior crowned uh, high school principal Todd Thompson with a little Mardi Gras bead necklace. It was did not seem to be planned, um, but it was very sweet, actually. So he ended the ceremony with, like, about 100 of these things around his neck. So I thought that was um, <laughs> very cool. Cute. <laughs> All right. Film commission stuff changing 
Yeah, the Grand Canyon Commission had a big meeting Tuesday, as it often does, and in one of their bigger decisions of the night, the commission voted 6-1 to pursue a contract that could send the Moab to Monument Valley Film Commission off to a private foundation for a probationary period of of likely 18 months. Uh, Again, the vote was 6-1, and Commissioner Trisha Dean was uh, the sole opponent to that vote. Okay. Um, And so this is a contract with Redcliffe's correct? Redcliffe's Foundation, yeah. Foundation. It's actually a separate legal entity from Redcliffe's Lodge, but they do have a relationship and they are co-located in that property on um, River Road. Definitely, I think the main concern that Hadeen and other commissioners expressed is this idea of kind of privatizing what is currently an arm of government and concerns about potential favoritism because one of the Film Commission's roles is connecting film uh, productions with local vendors and crew members and there's concern that Redcliffe's Lodge, you know, with having a relationship with this foundation could be specially considered potentially as a, a lodging office for these productions. Um, So for that reason, several commissioners did ask for more, quote, guardrails in the contract than the kind of draft contract that they saw and require a kind of soft commitment that the film commission will fairly and equitably consider and include and promote, you know, all local vendors and not just um, the lodge. Yeah. And what are some of the potential benefits between this collaboration? Yeah, I think the main argument for it that I've heard is that the film commission is not being sufficiently funded um, in its... uh, relationship with the county right now. The county's uh, giving it about $150,000 annually from transient room tax money, and the county is somewhat limited in, you know, where it can put those monies. Um, But it's been argued that the Film Commission needs more money. And so the partnership with Red Cliffs Foundation, they would have more funding than what the county can provide? That's the idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. The Economic Diversification Department is changing its funding. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And we've been doing some coverage of this over the last couple of weeks, but Grand County has a few weeks to figure out where its economic diversification remaining funds are going to go before that program kind of goes dark in July. And on Tuesday, um, the commission kind of uh, aligned with Economic Development Advisory Board suggestions in where to spend about $800,000 in these remaining funds, which is a lot more money than they'd thought a couple weeks ago. Um, so the commission's likely going to go with the suggestions of the board and then also helping fund flights to Salt Lake City um, from Redtail Air. As folks may know, Canyonland's original airport is going to lose its current Salt Lake City flights October 1st when it stops using SkyWest. And Redtail has proposed to provide twice weekly flights to Salt Lake City. Wow. Okay. So the Economic Diversification Department is going to fund those flights? Potentially. Okay, potentially. Um, yeah, exactly. So Redtail Air is asking for $95,000 for the first year of this program. And Randy Martin, who works for Redtail Air, has said that he wants the program to continue longer, maybe add more days if there's enough demand. Um, and he actually proposed a revenue sharing agreement where once Redtail kind of hits its break-even revenue point for this program, they would start reimbursing Grand County 50% of revenue above that until they hit theoretically the $95,000 that Grand County originally invested in this. So um, it could actually not be a cost at all in the long run and and help residents and elected officials go to and from the state's capital. Wow, that's great news. Would those flights still be subsidized? I don't think that they would have anything to do with essential air service, so I don't think they'd be federally subsidized. And they'd be in little nine-seater jets, so it'd actually be kind of a little cool little plane experience. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Finally... The mysterious smell wafting out from the wetlands. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Anyone who has sniffed a pretty bad smell near the wetlands recently should breathe easy. It's just the sign of a functional wetlands. Um, I was lucky enough to speak with Diane Manuz, who's the state wetland coordinator and wetland ecologist for the Utah Geological Survey. 
Um, and she said that when wetlands get flooded, all the microbial communities can no longer in the soil can no longer draw oxygen to breathe because they're being covered by this like stagnant, non-aerated water. So instead, those bacteria um, start ingesting sulfate and they produce this gas, hydrogen sulfide, as a byproduct, which is also known as swamp gas and smells pretty gnarly. <laughs> wow. Okay. Anaerobic. What do they call that? Anaerobic, Anaerobic respiration. respiration. Yeah. yeah, I remember that from high school. Bio. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, good, good to know the wetland is uh, doing its thing and it's not a bad, it is a bad smell, but not bad for you. Yeah, exactly. And, and Manu's kind of emphasized that the smell actually, you know, as annoying as it is, it does signal that the wetlands are working well and it is good that the wetlands got flooded instead of, you know, people's homes. So ultimately, I think it's kind of small price to pay, though maybe easy for me to say that as I don't smell that in my house right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Sophia. Yeah. Sophia Fisher, reporter at The Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Moab is world famous for hiking and mountain biking. I spoke with Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News about what it takes to maintain these celebrated trails. I talked to Evan Smiley, who is the Grand County Active Transportation and Trails Operations Coordinator, and he said one of the comments he hears most about his job maintaining the single track trails in Moab is that it must be easy because the trails are so in tune with the environment and perfectly placed on these rock ramps and between trees that, you know, it really looks like all the trail crew does to maintain them is just paint a few dots on the rocks. Um, But I went out with the spring team and um, really what makes the trails so seamless is that they have this really skilled crew of trail builders that are really good at puzzling together these rock ramps um, and also really amazing stewards of the environment too. So what goes into making a great trail? A big part of it is the minimal invasive techniques that this whole team uses to um, maintain the environment around the trail. And so Um, When I went out with them, they were developing Rowdy, which is a trail in the Horse Thief area, as an adaptive trail. Um, So adaptive trails for adaptive mountain bikes have to be three feet wide. Um, These adaptive mountain bikes are designed for riders with disabilities. So a lot of the times um, they're a little bit wider than your typical mountain bike. So they were developing this adaptive trail and they start by taking apart the ramp and then kind of assessing what they have in the area. So like which rocks are within a 25 foot corridor, which they try to stick to for the environmental assessment area. Um, And then, you know, which rocks could they feasibly use to build a new ramp and how would that look and how do they maintain a ramp to you know, stay within the challenge level of the trail. So the way that they do it is they take apart the ramp and then um, they kind of pull out other rocks from around the area using like pickaxes to dig them out. And then they have these huge pulleys that they use to pull the rocks into place. And then they kind of, because we have a lot of sandstone, they can chisel them down to um, shape and things like that. So it's kind of mesmerizing. I ended up staying out there with them for like three hours because I was just so entranced um, by what they were doing. But yeah, it's really cool how much they try to be or how much they try to stick to the environment that they're in. So like I watched them move lizards out of the way by hand and, you know, position the pulleys over tree roots so that things wouldn't get in harm's way. And they also follow each other's footsteps when going off trail. Um, And so really this reflects like kind of this big stewardship aspect that the Grand County Active Transportation and Trails is taking with 
you know, their trail team is super into minimally invasive techniques to maintain the trails. And then also they have this trail ambassadors program where people can talk to visitors and they have volunteer programs like maintenance Mondays. Are you a mountain biker? Yes. Yeah. So that was cool too, being able to see kind of how our trails are created. Yeah. Can you tell the difference when you're out there between a good trail and a bad trail? Yeah. You know, I think for me, um, I am not skilled enough to tell when it's a bad trail or when I'm just bad at doing it, but maybe now I can use that excuse. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Um, Was there anything else you wanted to say about that? just we had this kind of striking moment to me it was probably very normal for the crew but there was a mountain biker who went to go bike down the trail and um they stopped and kind of watched the trail crew and the trail crew was all you know moving out of the way and letting the biker pass and the biker was you know getting back on their bike and then said thanks for all that you do as they bike away and i think the crew probably bumps into a lot of instances like that because people really love them in this area yeah it's not often that you would see like the trail being made i guess but when you do you're like wow that's a lot of work yeah definitely cool okay moab garden club had a birthday recently yeah so the moab garden club is 13 years old Um, They meet once a month to tour a new garden and exchange advice. Cute. Yeah. Did you tour any gardens? I did not tour any gardens, but I did talk to Trisha Scott, who is the founder of this this, um, garden club. And she's kind of amazing because she's often been the founder of all the garden clubs that she's been a part of. So we talked about these four different places that she's lived in in her life, one of them being Moab. And um, every time she moves to a new area, she tries to found or join a garden club. Um, And I asked her why. You know, it's kind of intuitive. Like if you're into gardening, you would join a club that um, where you can, you know, share hobbies with someone. But she said that there's something really special about a garden club. Like she said it can break through social barriers and financial barriers. And it's just everyone's gathering outside and everything like that. And so... Um, garden clubs are really important to her. So now the club is 13 years old and it kind of works like this. So anyone can join the email list. Um, you just email Trisha with your name and your address and say that you want to be in the club. And right now there are over 120 people on the list, which is a ton of people. Um, and then monthly you'll receive information about where the meetings are going to be and where the tours are going to be. Trisha said they share seeds and plants and produce and then also get to tour these really amazing gardens. Um, She said gardeners are typically kind of nervous about having the club tour because it's all these other gardeners, so it seems a little bit intimidating. But she said that all the garden club members are the most accepting and appreciating group that people will ever have in their garden. So it's really just this wonderful group of people. Um, she also told me this story about how one of the club members was moving houses. And so he had to seemingly leave his garden behind, but the whole club got together to move all of his plants like they dug all of them up 250 plants and moved them to his new house um so members are really enthusiastic about gardening but they're also really enthusiastic about their friendships with one another and um trisha recently went through a personal loss and she said the club was really really good to her who has the best garden in moab oh i don't know (laughs) (laughs) part of me thinks that she would refuse to answer yeah it's not in the spirit of the garden club. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the house across the street from the high school with all the poppies. 
Ooh, that is a really good one. Yeah. Shout out to it. that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whoever you are. Okay. Uh, you also mentioned EZB Farm Stand. Yeah, so EZB Farm is going to open a roadside farm stand. It'll be located right near um, the farm. So it'll be at 4051 Easy Street. Um, it's going to officially open next weekend. And basically the farm stand will offer produce, like all the produce that the farm grows, as well as ready-made items like salsa and jam and pesto and bread. Um, So this is really cool for a couple of reasons. First reason that I'm most excited about is that um, City Market runs out of produce a lot. And so it's really cool that we'll have this option to go get produce that was um, grown locally and organically. Um, And so... I talked to Rhonda Gotway Clyde, who owns EZB, um, about the farm stand, and she really said that um, she wants the farm stand to be able to serve everyone in the community. So she's really passionate about offering fresh produce in the valley. Like EZB offers a CSA share and this, a working CSA share, so people can volunteer on the garden in exchange for produce, and also. Um, the farm offers produce shares through the Utah Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. Um, and so this is kind of just her big thing, is being able to offer really healthy food to the valley. And also, the farm's growth has exploded recently. Like, there's this new farm stand now, and also in the back half of the farm stand will be this um, this catering kitchen with these huge ovens and all of this state-of-the-art equipment and Rhonda said she's really excited about the farm stand's new sink and 20 gallon salad spinner that she calls R2D2. Um, So all the produce preparation used to happen in this small room connected to her house but now the farm stand will allow staff to work in this larger and way more intentional space Um, and it'll also allow EZB to have more farm to table dinners and be able to offer you know a catering kitchen that maybe people can rent or host their own dinners it opens next week you said yeah so it'll officially open on saturday june 17th um there will be this whole brunch event too people can buy tickets um on barntodoor.com and then the farm stand will be a self-pay system so you can go in and um, just pay cash or venmo into a little box Wow, that's a lot of trust. Yeah. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories from the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU community-powered radio.